Good morning. You know, one of the most uh, interesting things, one of the most interesting and compelling things about the Lord Jesus Christ is that when you study his life, what you will find is that he was incredibly humble, but not modest. Incredibly humble, but not modest. If you strip away all of the churchiness and all of the silliness that attaches itself to Jesus like barnacles on a boat, and you simply examine his life, and you simply listen to his words, and you watch his ways, what you will discover is that he was filled with humility. Everybody knows that. But he, not so much modesty. He spoke with such incredible authority. Everywhere he taught, the crowds would come away and say, he speaks as one with authority. Uh, and he did. Every time he spoke, he would challenge the religious leadership of Israel in such a way that it infuriated them. And at the same time, it would give insight into the scriptures in such a way that the people of Israel had never heard it that way before. And he, they would say he speaks with such authority. And one of the one of the words that's used for authority, authority in English, it's translated from a Greek word, which means out of the original stuff. And of course he spoke this way because he was God in the flesh. He had insights in the scriptures that no human could ever possibly have. But then when you looked at his life and you saw his demeanor, it was incredibly humble. So he was humble, but he was not modest in the sense that he would say over and over and over again, I really am the king in God's kingdom. I really am the king. In my presence, the kingdom of God has been made manifest. So he would say things like this, incredibly humble, but not modest, because he really is, was and is, the king. And what he says... And how he lives determines, and what we do with what, who he is and what he says, determines our destiny. And therefore, what he says and what's recorded in the pages of scriptures is the most important things that you'll ever hear. If it determines your destiny, who he is and what he has said, what he has taught, what he has done through the cross and the resurrection, then how you respond to him, and if you receive him as your king, actually will determine your destiny. So with that in mind, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We are in the third week, third and last week, by the way, of looking at some of Jesus' most challenging parables. Next week, we will start uh, a series in uh, the, in the um, servant songs out of Isaiah. We'll do that for the next five weeks. That starts next week. But this week, we're looking into the third of, of Jesus' challenging parables. And the background to today's parable is this. He is, Jesus is just days away from the cross. And he knows it, of course. Just days away from the cross. He's, um, this is the last parable before he enters into Jerusalem for what came to be known as the triumphal entry. And at this point, what has just happened, and it actually ties into the passage that we're going to look at today, is he's just passed through Jericho. And it was at Jericho where Jesus comes across the chief tax collector, a man by the name of Zacchaeus, who by all outward appearances 
did not seem to be interested at all in Jesus. By outward appearances, you would have looked at his life and you would have said, there's no way this guy is at all interested in Jesus. But inwardly, he was quite curious about Jesus. So much so that he put himself in a position where he could be ridiculed by climbing up a sycamore tree in order to hopefully just catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of Jesus. And you know, it, it's a reminder to us, by the way, um, that people who, by outward appearances, we look at and we think that person probably has no interest in Jesus. You ever do that? You ever look at somebody's life and you look at the way that they dress and you look at the manner in which they live and you you automatically cast a judgment and you think that person probably isn't at all interested in Jesus. Those are actually the people who are probably the most interested in Jesus because they know, um, they probably know that if they were to die tonight, they would stand in judgment before God. They know that they would be judged by him. But they've also heard of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so they're probably incredibly curious about Christ, just as Zacchaeus was. And so what Jesus does is he enters into Jericho and he he sees Zacchaeus climbing up this tree. What he does is the most shocking thing. He stops and he talks to him. He just stops and he opens up this conversation with him. He didn't tell him to go clean up his life first. He looked at him and he said, Hey, Zach, buddy, today I'm coming to your house to stay with you. And the moment he says that, remember, he's traveling, he's going away, he's walking through Jericho, all the religious people around him. And he, he looks at Zacchaeus, this guy who's the chief tax collector, and put everything that we talked about about tax collectors in your mind from last week. He's the chief tax collector. And Jesus stops there and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come and hang out with you. And the mouths of the hoity-toity religious people in that moment, they drop wide open. They can't believe that Jesus would speak with this guy. And what happens is, Jesus' relationship with Zacchaeus, it completely transforms him. He goes from being incredibly greedy to being, being incredibly generous. There's a transformation, reversal of his values. He goes from being incredibly greedy to incredibly generous. And it's a mark of his regeneration. Which is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, he says, today salvation has come to this house. Because he can tell this guy's, the reverse, the reversal of this man's values indicates he's been regenerated. And he says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he says, since this man is a son of Abraham. <laughs> oh man, you guys. Do you know what he just said by, when he said this man's a son of Abraham? He says this man is a part of the covenant. He's a son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. All you religious folks who think that you're earning your way into the kingdom... You're not a son of Abraham. This man, because he's put repentant faith in me, he's come to me in repentant faith, not based on his works, but based on faith. And the sign of it, the sign indicator of, of uh, his faith is the reversal of his values. He says, this man's a son of Abraham. And then Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He says, as the king in God's kingdom, this is the heartbeat of my kingdom. The heartbeat of my kingdom is to seek out and to save those who are lost. To save those who are far from God. 
Now, put all of that, what I just told you, and we didn't have time to look at it because we'd be here forever, but put all of that in the background as Jesus, as we get into this parable, because all of it's right in the background as Jesus begins to open up this parable. And what he will say is, if this is the heartbeat of the kingdom of God, to seek and save the lost, then this should be the heartbeat of God's people. If the heartbeat of the king is to seek and save the lost, then it should be the heartbeat of the king's people. That they should be uh, completely invested and completely involved with seeking and saving the lost. So, we're going to pick up the story. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And you'll see how these are connected. Verse 11. As they heard these things. Now these are the people all around him. As he's making his way from Jericho now to Jerusalem. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, Jericho to Jerusalem was 15, 16 miles, uh, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. As he's nearing Jerusalem, um, apparently there's these side discussions taking place. These little off, you know, little side discussions, conversations happening about how Jesus is going to finally establish the kingdom of God. Um, and in that day, the Jews were anticipating for a long time that someday the Messiah would come and he would, um, God would send forth his king like David. In fact, one of David's descendants who would overthrow their enemies and who would rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he, he would usher in unending peace and unending security and their weapons of war would be melted down and turned into farming implements. And and they're anticipating um, that Jesus is this king. And they're right about that. But they're wrong about the kingdom, how it's going to be established. And, and so they were looking for a visible, instantaneous, impressive political kingdom. And you would be too, by the way, if you were living under the oppression of the brutal Roman Empire who had occupied your land and had brutally oppressed your people and taxed you to to high heaven, you would be looking for this as as well. You would be longing for the day that this kingdom would be established. So as they're making their way to Jerusalem, there's this fervor, there's there's this anticipation. In their minds, they're hoping Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. And he's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Even though he's told them on several occasions that the kingdom in this age isn't what they are, are expecting. It's not visible. The kingdom in this age is not visible. It's invisible. It's an underground kingdom, God's kingdom right now. It's an underground kingdom where you live within it now under the direction of the king by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not instantaneous, it's gradual. Its growth is gradual as more and more people uh, come to the Lord Jesus in repentant faith and they're made a part of the kingdom. And it's not impressive. The kingdom in this age is not impressive. It's unimpressive. And in a lot of ways, it goes unnoticed. It's never talked about on the evening news. And um, it's not impressive. It's unnoticed by the world, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It's very real, but it goes unnoticed by the world. And the kingdom isn't political. It's spiritual. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He came to overthrow our greater enemies, Satan, sin, and death. 
are true, permanent enemies. And Jesus has come to overthrow those enemies. And he's told them this on several occasions, but it flies right over their heads. It continually flew over their heads. But now what he's going to tell them is there's going to be a day when Jesus will return with full authority and full power. And he will establish the kingdom that they're expecting. He will establish the visible, instantaneous, impressive, material, worldwide kingdom. That's, by the way, that's where the whole biblical narrative is going. Do you guys realize this? That's where the biblical narrative is going. Jesus will go to Jerusalem. And he will die by crucifixion. He will be buried for three days. But then God will raise him to life in the resurrection. And he'll ascend to heaven. And when he ascends to heaven, he's exalted as the true king. Exalted as the true king. That's what the ascension is all about. And then at some point, he will return with full authority. All power, all authority to judge any and all who have not come under his loving lordship. That's where the whole biblical narrative is going. And to establish his kingdom. His, because he's their true and rightful king. And again, he's told them this several times, but they just keep missing it. So, he tells them now again, through the means of a parable. He's going to tell them, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to return. And then he's going to say, and this is how you should live in the meantime. And by extension... Christian, what he's going to say is this is how you should live in the meantime. In the meantime, between the kingdom being inaugurated with Jesus' death and resurrection to the, uh, to the uh, return, the consummation of the kingdom, here's how, as a Christian, you should live. That's what he's going to drive home to these guys in this parable. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So he starts out by telling this, this story about a man of nobility, a man of noble birth, a royal household, who needed to go into the far country to be appointed as king before he could return with full authority and power, full authority and power to actually reign as king. And we hear this and that seems kind of odd to us. And it only seems odd to us because we've never lived in a land that's been ruled by another country. We've always been a freed people. But this was common practice in that culture. You would have to go to the ruling country to have kingship conferred upon you before you could return with full authority to actually lead as king. In fact, look again at verse 14. He says, um, his citizens, he's telling the story about this king that has to go away to to have kingship conferred on him. But, But then he says, but his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. What he's actually doing there is he's referring to something that they would have known. Um, They would have known something extremely well. It's referring to when Herod the Great, Herod the Great in 4 BC, he died and he had three sons. And he left his kingdom to Archelaus. 
But before he could actually be appointed as client king of Judea, Archelaus had to go into the far country. He had to go 1,300 miles to Rome to have his kingship conferred upon him by Augustus. Well, the Jews, they hated Archelaus, and for good reason. He had slaughtered 3,000 Jews in the temple during the Passover, and he had canceled the Passover celebration one year. And so they sent, the Jews, sent a delegation of, of 50 Jews to Augustus, to Rome, to try to block his appointment. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking that and he's comparing that situation to his own situation. Just as the Jews didn't want Archelaus to reign over him, to be king over them, um, now the religious leadership of Israel, they don't want Jesus to be king over them. But he's going into the far country and he will receive kingship. His kingship will be ratified. And then he'll travel back in his second coming and he'll establish his kingdom. But again, as Jesus tells the story before, he says, Jesus says, before the nobleman goes into the far country, he calls ten servants to himself. And he gives each of them a mena. And he told them to engage in business, to engage in my business, until I come. Engage in business until I come. Or in some of your translations, I think if you're in uh, the King James or the New King James, it'll say occupy until I come. Either way, it, the one who is going away is saying, be about my business, be about my work until I return. Now, what's Amina? Everybody wants to know. Here's what it is. Amina was approximately three and a half to four months worth of wages. It was a relatively small amount of money compared to some of Jesus' other parables. But the nobleman, what he does is he calls his servants and he gives each of them about three and a half to four months worth of wages. And he gives them the simple assignment of you to do business until I return. I'm going to be gone for a while. I want you to carry on and I want you to engage in my business until I return. I'm giving you resources to do the work that I've called you to do. I'm entrusting to you my resources to do my business. Now, um, step back and notice three important things about what Jesus is saying to us. Because Jesus is saying it to his disciples, but by extension, he's saying it to you and me. He's saying it to us because we're the people. The king is in the far country. And we're the servants. If you're a Christ follower, you're one of these servants. And Jesus comes to each and every single believer. And first of all, he gives you a God-given assignment. He gives you a God-given assignment. He says, do business until I return. Do business. Do my work on my behalf until I return. Even though he's absent right now, he's in the far country, he's saying, you're to be about my business. His business is going to be, his business in the world will be accomplished through you as you're acting on his behalf while he's away. So Christian friend, listen. You have a God-given assignment to use the resources he's given to you to seek and save the lost. You see, all of this, it flows right out of his mission that he just announced at, with Zacchaeus. His mission is to seek and save the lost. And if you're his servant, if you're one of his disciples, he's given you the resources to help fulfill that mission. And Jesus 
By saying that the, the nobleman called ten servants, he wants us to see that the God-given assignment isn't just relegated to the apostles. He doesn't say it's the apostles. He doesn't say he called the twelve to him. No. He says he just calls twelve servants. It's for any and all of Jesus' disciples. So ask yourself, am I one of Jesus' disciples? If you say, yeah, I am. I've given my life to Christ. Then this means you have a God-given mission. You have a God-given assignment to seek and save the lost. But then secondly, note this. You have God-given resources. You have God-given resources. He gives each of them a minna. He says, here's everything you need to participate in my cause, in my mission, in the assignment I've given you, to fulfill my mission, to occupy, to be about my business until I return. See, God's given you gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you opportunities. He's given you relationships. For many of you, he's given you health. You see, a minute represents all the gifts, all the resources, all the abilities that God's entrusted to you for you to use, for you to invest in fulfilling his mission, to do spiritual business for him while he's away. So the question you need to ask yourself, we need to ask ourselves, is in what ways has God gifted me? And what resources has he given me to be stewarded so that I can participate in and help further expand the kingdom of God? That's the question each one of us needs to ask ourselves. I ask myself that question all the time. In what ways has God gifted me? And what resources has he entrusted to me that I can steward them to the best of my abilities, I can leverage them to the best of my abilities to further expand the kingdom of God? Those are the questions. And what the Bible tells us is that God in his great providence, God in his goodness has gifted each of us and he's equipped each of us to represent him while he's away. So he's given us a God-given mission. He's given us a God-given resources. But then thirdly, notice this, he's given us God-given freedom. Because did you notice the nobleman doesn't say, I want you to do go over here and do this, and I want you to go over here and do that. He doesn't say that. All he says is, go and engage in business until I come. He doesn't give him a rule book. He doesn't give him a playbook. He doesn't give them certain parameters that they got to stay within. No. He gives them a whole lot of freedom. He gifts them. He resources them. And then he just says, go engage in business on my behalf. And how that gets expressed in this person's life over here may look completely different than how it gets, ex- uh, how it gets expressed in this person's life over here. But because there's God-given freedom. There's God-given freedom to use the resources and the giftings that he's given you to help further his mission of seeking and saving the lost. Well, in the parable, the nobleman sends his servants away, and we're not told uh, what they do. We're not told how they use uh, the meanness. But when the nobleman returns, he calls them, he calls them individually, to give an account of their dealings. Look at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 
10 more minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So the, the, the first guy put the nobleman's resources to good use. He had one. He faithfully invested it. And upon the nobleman's return, he now has 11. So a 1,000% profit. And Jesus says, because you've been faithful in a small thing, you'll, you'll, be, um, you'll be rewarded by having authority over 10 cities in the next stage. Because you've been faithful in small things, you'll be rewarded with a greater responsibility in the next stage. It's a greater work to be done in the next stage. That's glorious news. Which, it, By the way, it reminds us that the kingdom of God is not immaterial. Please notice that. When you think about the kingdom of God, when you think about heaven, do you picture it as being immaterial and you floating around? I hope not, because that's not the biblical picture. If you picture heaven as, as you floating around in an immaterial world, what you've done, maybe unwittingly, is you've let, you've let Greek thinking slip into, Greek, Greek thought slip into your thinking. Because in Greek thought, um, salvation, the physical world was evil. Immaterial was good. And so salvation to a Greek thinking person was liberation from the body. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is the material world will be freed of its sin, but will inhabit a material, redeemed material universe. And Christ says, for those who have been faithful in a little, you'll receive greater work to be done. Faithfulness now in stewarding the resource that he's entrusted to you, will result in reward of more responsibility in the kingdom. And that's, that's actually good news. Because work, when it's done without all of the mar and mess of sin, is actually enjoyable. And note that he, the nobleman is incredibly generous. He says, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful with a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. That's like... That's like going from the manager of Chick-fil-A to being the governor of Oregon overnight. And Lord knows we need a new governor in Oregon. So he, I mean, it's this amazing reward for this guy. He's saying, you have this very little, little thing, but look, now you have this because of your faithfulness. Back to the parable. Jesus then hi- highlights another man who's been faithful in stewarding the resources well. Look at verse um, 18. And the second man came saying, Lord, your mina has made five, has made five minas. A a, uh, 400% profit. That's a good return on an investment. If you opened up your retirement account and you saw a 400 return on investment, what would you do? Would you not leap for joy? Yeah, you would leap for joy. And Jesus rewards him. Look at what he says. He, um, he says, and you're to be over. Verse 19, and he said to him, you're to be over five cities. Again, a generous reward for his faithfulness. Um, but more than that, notice both of these men are standing before the king. And the king is heaping affirmation upon them. You ever work with somebody who is good at affirming you? A little affirmation in your life goes a long ways. When somebody you work with or someone who sees you doing a good job and they come up and they tell you, hey, you're doing a good job. Or if you're a parent 
and you're struggling with your kid and an older parent comes along and says, hey, I know it's a mess right now, but you're actually doing a really good job. That'll carry you, that'll get you through an entire day. When the king of the universe comes to you and says, good job, you're doing a great job. You've been faithful with what I've entrusted you. You've invested my resources on my behalf and they've accomplished a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. Now, sadly, in the parable, not all the servants put the mina um, that was entrusted to them to work. Look at verse 20. Then another came. So the third guy. Another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Um, this guy, he says, well, yeah, just stop there. He says, I, 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 I laid it away. Here's your mina. I laid it, I, I laid it away in a handkerchief. This, this guy gets called before the master and he comes in with a folded up handkerchief and he says, Lord, here you go. Here's your mina. I didn't follow your instructions. I didn't do what you asked me to do. I didn't put it to work on your behalf. What I did is I put it in my handkerchief and I put it away. It's like he's bragging about how careful he is. But the surprise in this story, and we'll see it in a second, the surprise in this story is that this is the man who's judged. He's judged not because he's made bad investments. It's not like he blew the money on wine and women. He didn't make bad investments. He's judged because he made no investments at all. He didn't do anything morally wrong per se. Again, he didn't blow it on wine and women. He didn't go to Vegas and gamble it away. The problem is not wild rebellion. Then what's the problem? If the problem is not wild rebellion, then what is the problem and why is he being judged? The problem is how safe he played it. That's the problem. The problem is how safe he played it. Listen to me, Christian friend, because some Christians play it way too safe. There's a, king, there's a world out there that is dying apart from Christ. And some Christians look at the world and say, well, it's a little too messy. It's a little too complex. It's a little too dirty, a little too dingy. That person's life is just a little bit too jacked up for me to get involved in. The reason this man is judged is because, not that again, not that he did anything morally wrong. It's because he played it too safe. And some Christians, they play it too safe. They don't do anything that requires risk. I gave you this quote a couple of weeks ago from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I'll give it to you again. And over the next 25 years, I'll probably give it to you again and again and again. But Bonhoeffer said, the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid sin. But rather, the goal of the Christian life is to courageously and actively do the will of God. The goal of the Christian life, let me say it again, just in order to offend somebody. The goal of the Christian life is not to avoid sin, but the goal of the Christian life rather is to courageously and actively do the will of God. And this man didn't actively do the will of God by investing the resources he'd been entrusted with. He didn't do the will of God. He had been told, here's what I want you to do. And he says, no, I'm not actually going to do that, Lord, because that would require a little bit too much risk. It would involve me getting my hands dirty. And so when the nobleman called him to account, he offers up this really lame excuse. Uh, this really lame excuse. Look at verse 21. Uh, he says, he tells the Lord in verse 20, he says, here's your manna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. 
And this is a lame excuse. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So he's been called to account and he offers up his master uh, nothing. He has nothing to offer his master. And so he offers up this excuse. And I think it's an excuse, by the way. I'll tell you why. Because um, Jesus uses this man's words against him. He uses this man's words to judge him for his inaction, showing the man's inconsistency, the inconsistency of his argument. Let me ask you, uh, parents, mom and dad, do you ever use your words stupid, your, your kids' stupid words against them? Do you ever get in an argument with your kids and they say something that's so stupid, that's profoundly stupid, that, and you hear it and you're like, oh man, I am going to use this against you right now. And you take their words and you use it against them. Do you ever do that? And when you do it, you do it dripping with sarcasm. Don't lie to me, parents. Some of you are looking at me like, no, I would never do that against my kids. Okay, well, wait till the teenage years. Um, because you will. This is what Jesus does. This guy, he uses, he make, he offers this lame excuse. And Jesus is going to take his words and turn them right back around on him. And I think he does it with supreme sarcasm, which I thoroughly enjoy. Look at verse 22. Jesus says back to him in the parable. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Well, if that's true, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. You see what he's saying here? Sarcastically, Jesus is saying, if you knew I was this, then why didn't you at least do that? Jesus shows the man how ludicrous his argument is. And notice, Jesus says this servant is wicked. Again, not because he did anything evil, but because he did nothing positive. It's not that he didn't, he did something that was evil. It was because he, he did nothing positive with the resources he's been entrusted with, and that is wicked. That If you do nothing positive with the resources you've been entrusting, entrusted with, that is evil. Because it's not actively pursuing the will of God to seek and to save the lost. Does that make sense? If you've been entrusted with resources, talents, time, treasure, and you say, well, I'm just going to hoard these for myself, I'm going to keep them for myself, I'm not going to actually invest myself, my time, my talent, my treasures in the kingdom of God, even though Jesus is my king, and even though I know the heartbeat of his kingdom is to seek and save the lost, if you're, if you're saying, I'm not going to do anything positive with the resources I've been entrusted, that thing right there is actually wicked. Because there's lost people out there in the world. And if you're not concerned with God's heart for the lost and fulfilling his mission of seeking and saving the lost, then that in itself is evil. So the nobleman, he renders his judgment in this parable. Uh, look at verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, again, this is a parable. He says, he's telling this story. He says, and, uh, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, 
I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is uh, kind of a use it or lose it principle. You either use what he's entrusted to you or you lose it. Now people will read this and they'll say, wow, that is incredibly harsh. And they'll try to over, they'll try to be more spiritual than Jesus. But let me ask you this. If you, if you had a sum of money and you went to three investment bankers and you gave each of them the same amount of money to, in, to invest on your behalf and then you went away and you worked for 40 years, let's say 25 to 65. Um, you went away and you worked for 40 years and when your, when your, um, statements came in, you never opened them which would be a miracle in and of itself. But let's say for 40 years, you had three different investment bankers, you gave them all the same money, the statements came in, you never opened them, and then upon retirement, after 40 years, you called in the three investment bankers, and two of them showed you huge profits. Gigantic profits. And then the third one came to you and said, here's your initial investment. I put it in an envelope and I put it in my desk. What would you do? What would you do? Would you not take the money from him and give it to the one who made the largest investment or made the the most growth? Isn't that what you would do? So you can't you can't try to be more spiritual than Jesus. He he is doing exactly what you would do. He's saying now listen to what he's saying. He's saying there's a real mission. There's a real mission with real consequences. And if you don't use the resources he's entrusted you to do business with on his behalf then he'll take them away and give them to somebody else. Because there is a real, there's a real mission with real consequences. There is real lives at stake. And he's saying, my people need to be invested in my work. And if they're not, I'll take the resources from them and I'll give them to somebody else who will invest them on my behalf. And then he closes out the parable with these words in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, now he refers back to the delegation who didn't want anything to do with him. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Whoa. Wait a second. Uh, Again, that refers back to the delegation, those who wanted nothing to do with his kingship. And in the end, those who wanted nothing to do with him, they get exactly what they wanted. Uh, They will have nothing to do with him for all of eternity. That the period of time they, when, when Jesus left in the parable, the nobleman left, they wanted nothing to do with him. He goes away for a far time to ratify his kingship. When he returns, if they still want nothing to do with him, if they, if they won't come under his loving lordship, if they won't submit to his kingship, then he says uh, they've rejected him the entire time, and in the end he will reject them. Does that mean... That upon the Lord's return, he will execute judgment? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And I know that's not a popular topic in our culture today. But that's because we minimize the fact that Jesus is a real king. That's why. We minimize the fact that Jesus is a real king. If he's a real king, and people have been rejecting his kingship, for as long as he's been away, then upon his return, he will execute judgment. 
He will execute judgment against all those who have not dropped their rebellion against them. Jot down, uh, jot down Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Jot, uh, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Look it up after lunch, right? Have a nice lunch before you look it up. Um, cause it, it is gruesome. Um, but he says, for all those who have not dropped their rebellion, he will come and he will execute judgment against them. And the parable ends right there. By the way, I looked up the word slaughter. It was one of the questions uh, one of the men had at breakfast. Does slaughter mean slaughter? And it does, um, widely enough. It means either slaughter or slay. And he's saying, again, he's saying, if you have not re- dropped your rebellion against me, in the end, if you have not dropped your rejection of me, in the end I will reject you for all of eternity. And the parable ends right there. Okay. Well, let's close. Let me ask a couple questions here. In this last parable that Jesus shares, this is the last parable he shares before he enters into Jerusalem. He tells his servants the critical nature of his mission. I mean, he makes it abundantly clear how critical his mission is and how they're to live in the in-between time. How his people, you and I, his servants, how we're to live in the in-between time, from the time that Christ left and ascended to the time that he returns. How should we live? Let me give you three ways. Here's the first one. By welcoming his kingship. First way we should live is by welcoming his kingship. For those of you who have not put your trust in Christ yet, this is the first and the most important step for you. And I want you to see, and here's what you have to see, this delegation's rejection of him and their rebellion against him, it didn't alter and it doesn't cancel out his kingship. It does not alter and it doesn't cancel out his kingship. He is king by virtue of what he's done at the cross. By defeating Satan, sin, and death, and then by uh, defeating death itself through the resurrection, receiving life again, this king, he is, uh, he is ratified as king. He is the king of kings. He's the king of Revelation 19. It actually says it. He's the king of kings and lords of lords. And what this king does for all those who have rejected his kingship up to now, he offers you amnesty. Do you know what amnesty is? Amnesty is an offer of pardon from a government, from a king, which is exactly who Jesus is. This king offers you amnesty. All you have to do is lay down your rebellion. You have to acknowledge, I've been in rebellion against you this entire time, Lord. I know it. I've chose to go my own way. Your word and your ways, I've lived in rejection of them. But the fact that you offer me amnesty... I'm going to accept your forgiveness. And I'm going to pledge unending love and loyalty. Remember, we're talking about kingship. I'm going to pledge unending love and loyalty to you as my king. And I'm going to come under your lordship and live in harmony with your words and your ways. So the first way to live in this in-between time is by receiving his kingship. Here's the second way. By faithfully being involved with... And invested in his work of seeking out and saving the lost. How do we live in this in-between time? 
We are faithfully involved with and invested in his work of seeking and saving the lost. That's the main thrust of this text. And it's a call to us to, to, for self-examination. That's the main thrust of the text. Am I using the resources he's entrusted to me? This is the question. Am I using the resources he's entrusted to me for his purposes? Because the, one of the most clearest evidences for the love of Christ is if we are actively engaged and using the resources he's entrusted to us to further his work. Are we moved to action? Literally moved to action in what he's doing in the world right now. Do you guys know the name uh, Richard Baxter? Anybody in here know Richard Baxter? Richard Baxter was a great uh, Puritan pastor back in the day. He said this on this passage. He says, we have... We have greater work here than securing our own salvation. Hmm. We have greater work here than securing our own salvation. For we are members of the world, and we should labor to do good to many. We are trusted by our master in our places, which means for us, many of us, the upper rogue. We are trusted by our master in our places to do our best to advance his truth and grace, to bring home souls and honor his cause and edify his flock and further the salvation of as many as we can. This, that is a significant and unfinished task. And the question remains, who will take up the task and invest in the work? Isn't that good? So let me ask you, and no guilt involved. Seriously. Let me ask you this question, and there's no guilt involved. But how involved are you? And how invested are you in the work of the kingdom? How involved are you? And how invested are you? It's a good question to ask. You want to do a mental exercise? Imagine yourself standing before the Lord. Give an account for how you have used the resources he's given you. Your time, the most important one, your time, your talents. Your treasure. How, how have you used those things to further his gospel work? Because his work is ongoing. And his mission is to seek and save the lost. How invested are you in it? Because now notice what what this parable is doing. This parable, like all the other parables we've looked at, it has real teeth to it. And it calls us to serious self-examination. It does that individually. Am I using the resources that he's given me to invest in his kingdom work. It does that individually, but it also does it for us corporately as a church. It does it for us corporately as a church. Because the last thing I want to do as a pastor, and hopefully the last thing you want to do as a church member here, is simply play it safe. Um, it's simply to play it safe and not seek creative ways to seek and save the lost. Great missionary William Carey, he once said this, and it is so good. He says, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Is that not good? I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. We shouldn't be afraid of trying new things and failing at them. What we should be afraid of is succeeding at things that don't make a difference. We should... Be afraid of succeeding at churchiness that doesn't actually make a difference. That doesn't actually matter. That should be, now Christian, that should be our attitude as well. Because the stakes are high 
And the mission is critical. So how do we live in the in-between time? First, by welcoming, welcoming the king, King Jesus, into our lives. By pledging unending love and loyalty to him as our king. Second, by being faithfully involved with and invested in his kingdom work. Here's last, the last one. By living in light of his soon return. We need to live in light of his soon return. He says, engage in business until what? Until I come. He says he's returning. He says he's returning. And you know what that does? That fills, fills, it fills our life with purpose and meaning because we know that the time is short. The time is short. And we have to be about the Father's business. And just as Jesus entered into the messy and complex world of Galilee and Judea, we have to enter into the messy and complex world of our communities, bearing witness of the grace of the King and urging people to join his kingdom by pledging their lives and their love to King Jesus. Amen? Let me pray, and then we'll worship the Lord. Why don't you stand? You've been sitting for a while. Father, we pray, as this passage calls us to self-examination, it calls us to actually consider how involved with your kingdom work and how invested in your kingdom work we really are, individually and as a church. And so, Father, we pray that as we consider these things, you would call us to greater faithfulness. You would call us to greater discipleship. And instead of playing it safe, Lord which is we are prone to do. Instead of playing it safe, we would move out courageously and we would actively pursue the will of God, whatever that looks like within our own lives because we have this God-given freedom to move about and to use uh, the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've gifted us with to seek out and save those who are far from you. In some ways, only we can do it, Lord, because we have relationships with people that other people don't have. So help us to move out in your love and with your purpose in mind. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.